Human beings have been sharing stories for hundreds of thousands of years. And with those stories came the emotional, spiritual, and physical knowledge of the ancients. Shaman Durek, a sixth generation shaman and best selling author of Spirit Hacking, bridges the gap between science and spirituality and brings us back to our roots. He's here to bring forth the ancient wisdom of our elders, to help heal and bring happiness into our modern society. The time has come to end codependency and put the power back into people's hands. Welcome to the tribe. What is the shaman school? No. You're not going to be studying to pursue a career in shamanism or to bang a drum. The definition of shamanism is one who understands relationship. The shaman school offering reminds you how to have a better relationship with things and how to nurture these relationships, whether it be with yourself, the food you eat, the people you meet, your ancestry, community, the global community, animals, nature, and so forth. My goal is to demystify spirituality, to add a bit of science and understanding of how things operate in the energetic planes. The Shaman School's no nonsense teaching explores all faculties of experience from the physical, the emotional range, the mental capacity for information, dialogue, lexicon, energy, perception, awareness, how to understand the energy of currency, and so much more. Fundamental education teaches the basics that we need in society, how to read, write, add, subtract, pay our bills, or how to become doctors, artists, mechanics, etc. But the Shaman School is a school that we all should have been a part of, one that offers the additional tools needed to better understand who we are, why we think the way we do, what's going on behind the scenes, and what we are actually seeing and processing. Are you living well? Are you paying bills just to keep the roof over your head? Are you in a relationship but not fulfilled? Satisfaction cannot be lowered anymore by the inability to recognize possibility. Living well means fulfilling your ideas and your goals and your dreams and having the best time doing it. In the Shaman School, I've extracted the best from all of the world philosophies, religions, spiritual teachings, and theories, offering a juice without pulp that will empower your life. The Shaman School invites you to a world where you're able to seize the tools of understanding, where you're able to have fun and have more because you deserve more. Go to shamandurek.com and click on the Shaman School for the first step toward ultimate happiness and an understanding of your truest self. Let's make things easier and not harder for our life. We deserve that. See you soon. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ancient Wisdom Today podcast. I'm Shaman Durek, and I am super happy that I'm here on this planet with you. And also, being aware of what's going on in the planet and seeing all the things that are happening, we must understand where we are in our evolution and what is being asked of us as powerful leaders of lit legacy to recognize what is necessary for us to pull things into a greater balance. Now, that balance is centered upon us getting out of duality. And how do we get out of duality? Well, we get out of duality by bringing the two parts that were severed 
and taken apart by the need of people who needed to create a religion or an idea to keep people believing that God has an adversary and so does the devil. Now, look, I, I understand that a lot of people have been indoctrinated into this belief that there is a God and there's a devil and that needs to have an adversary because in order for that to happen, then you get to decide if where you balance on the scale of the good book of good and evil and you decide if you go to heaven or you go to hell. And always, you know, stories do have a wonderful place in society and have helped a lot of people to be triumphant heroes and beautiful artists and writers and composers and so much more. But the key element is, is, is the story true? Is the story helping us to achieve the greatest understanding of ourselves? Or is it limiting us and holding us back from where we need to be in evolution? Well, the truth of the matter is the story is not true. There is no hierarchy in the spirit world. And I'm going to repeat that again so you can all get it. For those of you who are sitting in the back, there is no hierarchy in the spirit world. Now, hierarchy is built out of the need for disempowerment of one group of people over another. The idea of hierarchy is to set people against each other in a way that creates a value or market stance that allows one to see that they have something greater than the other. Therefore, their value, their words, and their power is so much more over than any other type of source. That means that you can become your own idea of authority that gives you power over another person. And if you look at it from that perspective, you're looking at slavery, you're looking at all kinds of different things that would arise. Whenever there is a division between darkness and light, we create what is called the chaos circle. The chaos circle is an energy formation that builds upon the consciousness of humanity because human beings will then begin to tear themselves, rip themselves, and disillusion themselves by constantly speaking against themselves and seeing themselves in the opposite of the truth of who they are. The darkness is not evil. It's not this horrible thing that's going to go and get you and rip you apart and tear you apart and make your life miserable and attack you. The darkness is an amplifier of energy. The energy is what is coming from another being. Could be a spirit, could be you, could be anything. Anything that's amplified through the darkness, meaning projected into the darkness, then becomes more powerful. So what does that mean? That means that the severing of the two ideas, as long as we continue to believe that God has an adversary and it's the devil or Satan or whoever, and that these things are actually in opposition to one another, it creates an energy that creates a discourse within the human consciousness. That means that human beings begin to act out disillusionment and division. This has caused wars. This has caused separation. This has caused issues around racism. This is called sexism. This has caused all the major calamities that you see appearing in the world today and have appeared in the world for hundreds and hundreds of years of our human existence on planet Earth. That the majesty of disillusionment is the idea that there has to be something against you for you to fight against, the idea of fighting. Now, I've been a person who has lived through these experiences and have played into them as well um, in this life and in other lifetimes. And the key element for us, and I'm sure you have too, is to go back into the place of centering. And the place of centering is realizing that the darkness is amplifying our own fears, our own ideas, and we're projecting them into the darkness instead of utilizing the power of the darkness and the power of the light as two energies that merge in one to create a new energy that allows us to have synthesis 
and Synergy. Now, I'm completely excited about this amazing venture of bringing the darkness and light together on our planet. But in order for us to do so, the key element that traps us in one polarity or another is judgment. When we go into an idea of authority in judgment, the consciousness of looking at the light as this holier than thou, love and light, I need to be the light, the light is the key, and all of these things, we are disregarding the darkness, therefore cutting off an aspect of ourselves and throwing one aspect of ourselves away, which then makes the light dim. So it's funny when people say love and light, because you can't have love and light without having the darkness, because the dark like the void of space where it amplifies the energy of the sun and the stars and everything else so that you can see the glimmer and the shine and the radiance and the illumination is the same thing that happens to us. But because we have been indoctrinated in the idea that darkness is this evil thing. Now, when I talk about parasites and I talk about spirits in the underworld, I'm talking about spirits who have been amplifying their disillusionment through darkness that has caused disruption energetically to fields in the spiritual realm as well in the physical realm, which you see today every day when you see criminals and people doing things. Now, these people are doing things out of the intellect that they are projecting through the darkness through their misaligned thoughts or their imbalanced thinking or their emotional lack of intelligence. That means that they're operating in disillusionment, which means they're operating in the idea of not truly knowing themselves and only perceiving themselves through the events and the occurrences that took place in their life. Like for instance, if someone did something horrible to them or if they grew up in an abused home or if they were, no one felt like they felt they didn't feel love, so they went to drugs and alcohol or they feel like someone has something more than them and life has sucked for them and it's good for another person. All of these behaviors and ideas that they're experiencing are reflected into their character. It doesn't mean that's who they are. It just means that that's what's been reflecting into them, causing the disillusionment. And so when they project that into the darkness, the darkness then amplifies that disillusionment and begins to communicate to them their truth and their validness within who they are. And that's why you have rapists and killers and madmen and psychopaths and, and all kinds of people who just won't come back into synergy because they're in disillusionment with themselves. They don't know themselves. They know themselves through the experiences and through the antiquations of division and pain and separation that they felt through life circumstance. Woo! Can I get a ah woman and a ah man? Okay. Or ah everyone. Now, we got to take it to another level, right? So let's get explosive. Okay, here we go. So the key element is, is that if we are operating in disillusionment, where we actually think that bad things are happening to us in our life, there's not enough money, there's no love, there's no this, there's no that. That's because we're generating our consciousness through our division within, that's already created within us through the matrix through our brain. Yes, your brain. Your brain is not supposed to really be activating operation of communication and thinking through the process of human development. That means why? Because your brain is a polarity organ. And you've heard me say this many times. So I'm just going to repeat it again and again. Your brain is a polarity organ. Your heart is a quantum organ. Your stomach is a clarifier. And your vagina and your penis is also a clarifier and also a binder. So let me give you an example of what that means. 
your brain, which basically can only give you information based on what it's learned, what it's taken in and what authority figures have indoctrinated, pressed upon you, or you've been constantly had what we call irritating repetition in order to memorize or to bring consciousness to. That means school institutions, parents repeating themselves over and over, parents using our authority figures using some form of pain or some form of guilt or some form of separation, abandonment, or the idea that you will be punished for all eternity or for in the moment right now, whatever that is, or some idea of loss, These things create you to betray yourself and act in consequence and sequence with who is saying what to you. So your brain then takes it in and goes, okay, this is what is true and real. So your brain goes, oh my God, I have to protect you from getting punished. I have to protect you from being you know, ostracized. I have to protect you from never getting into the kingdom of heaven. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to create an authoritative voice in your mind that makes sure you stay in line and don't fall out of line so that you're safe from having these horrible tragedies, these horrible things happen to you, which in truth are generated out of the past experiences that you've gone through now moving forward. When we think about anything in life, we have to understand that the brain is a polarity organ. And that means that it bases its truth in duality, good versus evil, bad versus good, right versus wrong, so on and so on. And those subjective ideas are generated by your upbringing, by your parents, authority figures, school system, whatever the government tells you, whatever news tells you, whatever anything tells you, and you believe into it. Now, does it mean, mean it's true? It just means it's true for you because your brain has taken it in as truth and it has consequences to those truths that it doesn't ever want you to experience. So it will do everything it can to protect you and mentally organize your thoughts and your ideas of choice to send impulses and ideas that are based on those ideas and thoughts and experiences. Okay, now... When the spirit, which is your spiritual body, which is you, it's emanating all around you, through you and above you, below you, like it's everything, right? It's this pure energy source, which we call the force in Star Wars, but I'm just going to say call it source, but it is the force, right? It's this energetic field of energy. In order for your brain to have what we call corrected adjustment or what we say not to be in malfunction in thinking, which means it thinks against you for the purpose of survival and fear. So it keeps you in survival mode instead of keep you in harmony, joy, bliss, happiness, pleasure mode. It requires spirit to come through. But the dissevering of that comes from the darkness and the light. It comes from the idea of hierarchy and duality. If you stay in hierarchy and duality, your spirit will never be able to achieve the highest level of interacting you with all of the angelic energies of your being. Now, when we talk, when we talk about a cognitive angelic response, that means that, and I love that just so you know, cognitive angelic, C-A-R, right? Right? It's literally the, it's the, I call it the car, cognitive angelic response, but I call it the car. That's like my thing I created when I was a kid. But the whole thing is, is that the car is what gets you somewhere. It takes you somewhere, right? So every energy, every word is attached to an angelic energy or a being that has been disillusioned and is sitting in what we call the underworld or inside the spirit world or a walk, or people would like to call them earth walkers, okay? That uh, are disembodied. 
So what that means is what? That means that there are a bunch of angelic hosts that make up you. You cannot exist without the angelic formation. When people think of angels, they think of wings with beings that have halos above their head. In fact, angels are energy frequencies that hold consciousness to project it out into the world. So like every angel is projecting a level of God consciousness or a source consciousness uh, that are operating in both the field of intelligence of darkness and light, which means that it's not evil nor good. It's just about harmony and synergy and balance and so forth, right? It's this higher wisdom. Now, inside of every human being, there may be hundreds and hundreds of angels that have not been recognized as aspects of your consciousness. And you have a choice to bring those energies into play. And when you do, you activate them. And we will talk about this more in other podcasts. But when you activate them, you build powers in the physical body that can change the outer landscape or the canvas of life, which is basically you will become a master code writer just by thinking and feeling something different than what is actually being presented to you. That means that you won't buy into the, the disfranchised dream that's being played out right now by the minds and thoughts of all the people, which I call the disgruntled wizards who are not operating in sequence of creating a world that is actually functional for all life, including animals and nature and all beings and all cultures and all preservations of culture and people and so forth. You know, it doesn't matter what you consider yourself sexual whatever there's a place for you and there's love for you and there's acceptance for you and all of your myriad of wonderful colors that we either know of or we don't know of now that being said that is literally creating heaven on earth now in order to generate heaven on earth we have to be willing to see the value of humanity through the value of self. Now, we can't see the value of humanity if we're not willing to see the value of self because then we become these subservient, people-pleasing, people who are walking around seeking the accolades of other people in order to see the value of self, which then only puts us in complete inauthenticity with other people because if we're just going around people-pleasing, then we're doing it for the wrong reasons, which immediately casts us as inauthentic people. So the key element always, and if you look at all cultures and all ideas of spiritual thought, it's always like, go in, go in, go in, go in. Why do you go in? Because that's where all the angels of consciousness live that you can meet. But in order to see them, perceive them, you have to be able to open up that part of yourself that is beyond the polarity. And that is of the heart, right? So the heart, the stomach, the penis, the vagina, which are able to really connect you into pleasure, ecstasy, joy, bliss, expansion, and knowing right? Because the stomach knows. Like you may think your stomach doesn't know, but your stomach knows. And when your stomach doesn't like something, indigestion, gas, inflammation, I mean, the list goes on, constipation, all of it, right? And then it affects your organs and so forth. And trust me, I have been an advocate of all of those experiences and it's not pleasant. And I'm sure it's not pleasant for you. So let's move on from that. So the point I'm making is, as we begin to transverse through these different energies, when we see conflict and disillusionment on planet Earth, when we keep focusing on that conflict and disillusionment and have conversations about who's right and who's wrong, like who should be vaccinated and who shouldn't be vaccinated and who's this and who's that and people are getting mad and, oh, you voted for this person, you voted for that person. 
All of these things are all constructs of the matrix to keep us in division and disillusionment. So we never go in to meet this beautiful wellspring of intelligence that is waiting for us to tap into. Pretty cool, right? I think so. And I love it. And it's lit and it's powerful and it's amazing. So let's continue. Okay, so that being said, where we are today is to remove the judgment, the, the, the analyzation, the idea or the concept of darkness being evil and move darkness into being an amplifier of energy. Whatever energy you throw at it, it will amplify, period. That's it. So think of it in the sense that darkness and light need to be sitting in the same energy for them to merge and create a new energy, which we call the fifth element or the fifth dimensional field of consciousness or 5D consciousness or however people want to interpret it. And that's why the shadow, which is the clarifier of the two, because the shadow holds both energies, is there to go like, hey, here's the reasons why you keep judging these things. Here's the reason why you keep putting this down. And here's the reason why you keep looking at this incorrectly. And here's the things you don't want to deal with. And here's the things that you turn your back into. And here's the things you say you don't resonate with when you really do. And all of these things, right? So when people talk about shadow work, which I call shadow love, because shadow is pretty rock and roll, right? Because the shadow is going to tell you exactly what is the truth. It's not going to mince it, sugarcoat it, or glaze over it is there to get you to bring the darkness and light together. But most human beings have been indoctrinated into the nonsense of the matrix, and they're caught up in all these indoctrinations of religion and idea and control and separation and hierarchy that they still keep analyzing the darkness and separating it from the light, which basically dims your light because your light requires the amplification of the darkness to shine and radiate its most brightest. I mean, you can't turn on a light in a room and see the light unless there's some form of shadow that's coming in to illuminate it, right? So you're illuminating through the shadow. So you, the stars will never be seen in the sky. The stars and the light's already there, but you see it because the darkness shows you how it illuminates, right? So it allows more illumination. So think of it in yourself, right? The more you bring these two energies and get out of duality, you are actually healing the division on our planet. We have division on our planet because we cut through the nucleus of that which was already in synergy. And we separated those two energies as individual components against one another in this, this, this drawn out cinema series, theater show of hierarchy between good versus evil versus acknowledging that evil is the representation of a being who's not operating in the light or the dark. They're operating in the idea of power, misuse of power, and the fear of not having power based on the circumstances in their life that I told you before that are based on how it's been reflected to them in their character. So they don't even know who they are because they built who they are based on their circumstances and experiences. So what I'm saying, Tribe, is... For us to take it to the next level, it's time for us to remove the chaos, the duality, the division, the separation on our planet. And how we each can do our part is by bringing the dark and the light together. I love you. Hey Tribe, so the Tribe wants to hear from you. And I know a lot of you are talented out there in music and poetry and recipes and ideas and just, you know, things that you want to share with the Tribe. You can send that information to info at shamandurek.com and share your gifts with the Tribe. Love you all and stay lit. 
Hey Tribe, we have an amazing share, a song called I Remember by Claire Dacey. You can find her at www.clairedacey.com. That's C-L-A-I-R-E-D-A-C-E-Y.com. Enjoy. Love you. I was spring. 
Bay Tribe, we're going to take a short break to hear from one of our amazing sponsors, who is Lit Verified. The Lit Verified store is open. But what does Lit Verified mean? Lit Verified is an acknowledgement and stamp of approval by the tribe. I have tried each of these products and they are the best. Lit Verified products vary from beauty, technology, clothing, food, health, and wellness, and anything that is ethically sourced, organic, maintained, and sustainable. Not every product offered to the team passes the Lit Verified test. No, not at all. Every Lit Verified product is carefully researched. Every CEO has been met with. Every ingredient carefully looked into the process production of all of it. I have seen the impact these vendors are making. Their vision and ethics are aligned with our tribe, with people who are consciously supporting community and want to make a difference in our world and make it a better place for us. Lit Verified products are ethically sourced and meet the highest industry standards. When purchasing Lit Verified products, we give back by creating sustainability and by leading the world to make better choices. You can be confident that you're buying into a company that supports a vision for change, not just a company that wants to line their pockets with money. We live in a time where we are oversaturated by commercials, TV, and social media, where far too many celebrities and influencers are endorsing things they know nothing about and things they might be doing damage to people, to the earth, and to animals. With Lit Verified, we've taken that doubt out of the equation. You're not only getting the best, but you're also doing the best. Pick up your awesome Lit Verified items at shamandurek.com and click on the link that takes you to Lit Verified. Love well, tribe. All right, tribe. Time to hear from our special guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ancient Wisdom Today podcast. I'm Shaman Durek, and I am super happy that we're on this planet to share in this beautiful global transition that we are operating in as we step into our autonomy and get out of codependency and recognize the power that we have to resource and bring to the collective a new source of information and intelligence. I'm very happy at this time to talk about all of the different things that we need to do to be able to shift and lift our lives to higher perspectives and to be able to see that our mindset and our vision is in alignment to where we're going. On top of that, I'm very super, super duper happy that we have in studio today, Alex Benayan is the youngest best-selling business author in American history. The Third Door Chronicles, Benayan's seventh year quest to uncovering the definitive mindset of growth and success. The book is the number one international bestseller, and he is here to share with us new ideas on ways that we can can continue to open ourselves up in recognizing the meaning of the third door. I'm super happy to have him in studio today, and I love having conversations with such geniuses such as himself. Thank you for being here in studio, Alex. Thank How are you. you? I am doing fantastic, and I'm very excited to dive in with you. So thank you Excellent. for having me. I love everything about the Persian culture. You know, my nanny, when I was growing up, she was Persian. Her name was Ati. Oh, wow. Did she teach you any Farsi as a kid? You know, she did, but then I I forgot a lot of it because I've learned so many other languages. But I remember like Haleshitore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, and I remember the food. It was like gourmet, no, sub, sub, gourmet. Gourmet, sabzi, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. right. 
and we had the rice, the hard rice. Tandig, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I love everything about the Persian culture and um, even just even the history and so forth. I even believe I had a past life in Persia. So I, I, every time I connect with Persian people, we always end up becoming really good friends. So I love that. So it's well, nice I'm that. happy to be a part of the long list of your new Persian friends. Yeah, you're amazing already. I can see it in your just in your eyes alone. So tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming an international best-selling author and mentor what sparked your interest in writing the third door the journey of the third door began 10 years ago i was 18 years old a freshman in college and i was spending every day lying on my dorm room bed staring up at the ceiling and i don't know if you ever went through the what i want to do with my life crisis but i was going through it and it was hitting me hard and to understand why i was going through it you have to understand, you know, as you know, I'm the son of Persian Jewish immigrants. Yeah. Pretty much means I came out of the womb, my mom cradled me in her arms, and then she stamped MD on my ass and sent me on my way. And, you know, as a kid, you know, I think it's funny. In third grade, I wore medical scrubs to school for Halloween and thought I was cool. You know, that was my childhood growing up. And in high school, I checked all the boxes. I took all the biology classes. I studied hard for the SATs. I even went to pre-med summer camp. So by the time I get to college, I'm the pre-med of pre-meds. But very quickly, I find myself lying on this dormer bed, looking at this towering stack of biology books, feeling like they're sucking the life out of me. And at first, I assumed, maybe I'm just being lazy. But very quickly, I began to wonder, maybe I'm not on my path. Maybe I'm on a path somebody's placed me on and I'm just rolling down. So now not only do I not know what I want to do with my life, I have no idea how all the people who I looked up to, how they did it. You know, how did Bill Gates sell his first piece of software when nobody knew his name? How did Lady Gaga get her first record deal without a single hit under her belt? You know, this is what they don't teach you in school. So I just assumed there had to be a book with the answer. So I was just going to the library and just ripping through, you know, business books and biographies and self-help books, assuming there had to be a book not on a particular age in life, but really a stage. When you have a big dream, you have a big goal, but no one's taking your calls, no one's taking your meetings, how do you find a way to break through? And eventually, I was left empty-handed. And that's when my naive 18-year-old thinking kicked in. I thought, well, if no one's written the book I'm dreaming of reading, why not write it myself? You know, I thought it'd be super simple. I thought I would just give Bill Gates a call, interview him, interview everybody else, and I'll be done in a few months. That, I thought, would be the easy part. The hard part, I figured, was getting the money to fund the journey. You know, I was buried in student loan debt. I was all out of bar mitzvah cash. So there had to be a way to make some quick money. <laughs> so and this is where the story gets a bit mystic, and it takes a sharp left turn. So two nights before final exams, I'm in the library doing what everyone does in the library right before finals. I'm on Facebook. And I'm on Facebook and I see somebody offering free tickets to The Price is Right. And, you know, as most people know, The Price is Right, you know, most famous game show in American history. And I was going to college in Los Angeles, not too far from where the show filmed. And the tickets were for the next day. And my first thought was, what if I go on the show and win some money to fund this book? You know, not my brightest moment. Plus, I had a problem. I'd never seen a full episode of the show before. 
you know, I'd seen bits and pieces of it when I was homesick uh, from school in fourth grade. But, you know, I told myself it was a dumb idea and to not think about it. But, yeah, I would imagine you can relate to this. There's some moments in life where no matter how preposterous an idea, for some reason, it won't let you go. So to prove to myself this was a bad idea, I remember I was sitting at this round wooden table in the corner of the library. And I take out my spiral notebook and I write the best and worst case scenarios, you know, to prove to myself it's a bad idea. And I remember writing, you know, worst case scenarios. They all finals, get kicked out of pre-med, lose financial aid, mom stops talking to me, no mom kills me. You know, there's 20 cons. And the only pro was maybe, maybe win enough money to fund this dream. And it's almost as if somebody had tied a rope around my gut and was slowly pulling in a direction. So that night I decided to do the logical thing and pull an all-nighter to study. But I didn't study for finals. I studied at a half the price is right. And I went on the show the next day and did this ridiculous strategy and I ended up winning the whole showcase showdown, winning a sailboat, selling that sailboat. And that's how I funded the book. And that's really how the journey set off. Oh, that's amazing. That is amazing. So you got to go behind which curtain, this curtain and that curtain. Yeah. You know, they pull open the curtain. There's a sailboat, you know, the whole, the whole Price is Right story is a whole, you know, preposterous story in and of itself. But that was really the unexpected launching off point of this seven year journey to go study the mindset of success. I love that. What were you wearing? If if you don't mind me asking. I was wearing a bright red uh, college t-shirt neon yellow sunglasses, a big puffy jacket. I looked like a chubby toucan. It was perfect. Oh, fantastic. I love that. So tell me, what is the meaning of the third door? In what ways can we access this metaphorical door? You know, once I, you know, sold the sailboat for the price is right, you know, I had this, I I think I sold it for $17,000, which for a broke college student is a million bucks. You know, I think I'm a baller now. I'm taking all my friends out to lunch, you know, free guacamole for everybody. I'm really balling out. <laughs> you know, I, I'm rich. So, and I have this money and I decided I'm going to use this money to go learn from the people who I looked up to the most at that time in my life. So, you know, it took two years to track down Bill Gates, you know, three years to get the interview with Lady Gaga. And when I started the journey at the beginning, when I started the journey, there was no part of me looking for that one key to success. You know, we've all seen those tech talks or those business books. And normally I just roll my eyes. But what ended up happening over the seven-year journey of doing all these interviews is I realized that every single one of these people, didn't matter where they were from, didn't matter what they did, every single, you know, it could have been Maya Angelou from Stamps, Arkansas, Warren Buffett from Omaha, Nebraska. Every single one of them treated life and business and success the exact same way. And the analogy that came to me is that it's sort of like getting into a nightclub. There's always three ways in. So there's the first door, the main entrance where the line curves around the block, where 99% of people wait around hoping to get in. You know, we've all seen that line, you know, people standing out in the cold, shivering, hoping the bouncer lets them in. That's the first door. Yeah, I don't go on that line. Right? And then there's the second door, the VIP entrance where the billionaires and celebrities go through. And school and society have this way of making us feel like those are the only two ways in. You know, you're either born into the royalty or you wait your turn like everybody else. But what I've learned and what I'm sure you've seen in your own career is that there's always, always the third door. 
And it's the entrance where you jump out of line, run down the alley, bang on the door a hundred times, crack open a window, go through the kitchen. There's always a way in. And it doesn't matter if that's how Spielberg became the youngest director in Hollywood history, how Jane Goodall launched her career in the sciences. Every single one of them took the third door. So that's not only the title of the book and the thesis of the book, that's really the energy I'm trying to inject into the next generation. So the energy that you're injecting into the next generation is to come up with something that is nothing that anyone has ever done before or has never tried before. Is that what we mean? Is that the meaning what we're talking about as the third door? Right. Like, so let, let me give you an example, for instance. Right. Like. I wrote a book in Turkey. No one would publish it because I'm an American writer and it's about the Quran. It's about Turkish culture. It's about all these different things. I could have went down the original route, but instead what I did was I decided to find people who were, you know, very strong and connected to uh, about bringing new messages to Turkey. And through that, they connected me to someone who actually owned the publishing company that was like, if you can fix my back, that I've been having problems with for like almost two years, I'll publish your book. So I was like, I'm going to fix I'm going to fix this guy's back. Okay. Right. Are you saying like someone like, do you mean like we make up our own way? Is that what I'm trying to understand? That's what exactly. There's always, you know, at the core of the third door belief is that no matter, you know, your story is a perfect example, no matter what obstacles are in front of you, no matter how many people say no, at the end of the day, there's always a way. Yes. And it's true. always a way. There's always a way, and the way is never to just stand in line hoping someone gives it to you. It takes courage to go run down that alley, bang on the door, crack open the window, go to the kitchen. There's always a way. It's not the easiest way. It's not the cleanest way. You're going to get some mud on your pants. You're going to might bruise your elbow. You might you know get some dirt on your face, but there's always a way. And that's really what the stories in the book share. I love that. That's brilliant. I love that. I think that, well, it sounds like you've been living your life that way too. I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, look, I grew up in a small little town called Foster City. And now today I'm the second uh, person of color marrying into the royal family. So my life has been, you know, always breaking the rules. I, all, I, lo- I always live outside of what the matrix thinks I should do. And I always do the complete opposite on what people think I should do. And that's how I, I, I move to the places that I do in life. But I think that, you know, there's something, it's interesting that you say that because a friend of mine um, who you know is an actress, Gwyneth Paltrow, she said to me once at dinner, she said, there's the people who become famous and the people who make success in life are the provocateurs. They are the people who don't care what people think are willing to be awkward, strange, different, and stand out in a crowd that wants every that the crowd wants everyone to follow a certain way. These are the people who are willing to step beyond what someone says they can do. And those are the ones who get seen and those are the ones who get noticed and those are the ones who succeed. And it was interesting because I was thinking about that and I was like, wow, We're not trained that we're not in school. We're trained to follow and do as we're told and be the sheep. And, you know, I always say keeping the very uh, sheep mentality, which is as long as we get love, as long as we're accepted and as long as we're comfortable, then we're doing the right thing. And it's people like you that I love and, and respect because by acknowledging that level of rebellion against the the idea of 
what people think is the way to do it or the normal thing, you're actually creating the door. You're creating the pathway. You're creating that way in so that people are able to see, wait a second, I am the master of my own universe. I'm capable of creating. And then they get to see themselves as this amazing creator instead of being just a person who follows the herd and does whatever the herd wants them to do. And then all of a sudden they're wondering why life isn't getting better for them, why nothing's changing because they're not willing to take a risk. So how do you view the relationship between success and failure? And what is your defining moment of success from that perspective, or do you fear failure at all? So I'll tell you one of my favorite stories from the journey that taught me the most about the relationship between success and failure. So this interview took place toward the end of the seven-year journey. And to give a little context to where I was at that point, you know, with the third door, it wasn't these random series of events. Each interview had something that preceded it. And right before this final interview, there was a disastrous situation with Mark Zuckerberg. And it's a story, you know, we can talk about another time, but what you need to know, the core of the Zuckerberg story has ended up getting introduced to Zuckerberg over email. I'm freaking out. I was, you know, about 21 at the time, you know, I'm so excited. And because of a logistics error, I showed up to the meeting that event security wouldn't let me in. The, they wouldn't let me into the building. They thought I was an imposter and I missed the entire meeting. And it was one of those situations. It felt like I had fumbled the ball at the, you know, 95 yard line. Mm -hmm. You know, I just could not forgive myself. And it was one of those things where I just would wake up morning after morning, beating myself up internally. And that's how I felt on the inside, black and blue, when I walked into this final interview with Quincy Jones. Now, I knew what a lot of Americans know about Quincy Jones. I knew he has more Grammy Awards than anyone in history. I knew that he produced the best-selling album of all time, Michael Jackson's Thriller, the best-selling single of all time, We Are the World. He's worked with Sinatra and Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder. Um, you know, He discovered Oprah Winfrey and Will Smith. He's undeniably one of the most successful people in entertainment history. Yeah. But the second I walked into his house... I realized I don't know the half of it. So you sort of have to picture this, right? His living room is this perfectly round room with gold lighting coming from the floor. It's a place you would feel very comfortable in, you know, very, you, you can just feel the presence, right? And there's a couch right in the middle. And, you know, I'm sitting down on the couch and a few minutes later, you know, in walks in Quincy Jones. He's about 80 years old, so he walks in very tenderly, and he's wearing this long blue velvet robe with gold stitching on the bottom. And he sits down next to me, and he asks me where I'm from. And I'm like, oh, hi, Mr. Jones. Um, my name's Alex. I'm from Los Angeles. And he goes, no. I said, where are you from? You know, I'm looking at him like, is this a riddle? Like, I don't understand what he's talking about. And I go, oh, you know, finally clicks. I go, oh, my family... My family's from Iran. Right. He goes, that's what I thought. And he launches into a 30-minute story about dating a Persian princess, trying to break the Ayatollah out of prison. And he sucks me into the Quincy Jones vortex, and it is the happiest place on earth. You know, he has a story for everything. We're talking about the pyramids in Egypt. We're talking about Rio's Carnival. And he has this way of looking into your soul and telling you exactly what you need to know without even having to ask. And about halfway through the interview, he tells me a story 
that, as we talked about earlier, completely changed my understanding of the relationship between success and failure. Completely changed that understanding. So Quincy's telling me this story from early on in his career. And he's explaining to me that at the early stages of his career, the entire music industry was run by the mafia. That's right. The The whole industry was run by the mafia. And there was exploitations of black Americans that were unimaginable. And he explained to me that, you know, he had to go in to get a publishing deal for a original composition he made. So he goes into this, you know, big executive's office, you know, he's feeling really excited. He sits down, the executive is behind the desk. The executive slides the contract across the table. And the contract says that Quincy will only get 1% of his own publishing. Quincy's about to say something, but he looks up and sees that behind the executive are all his cronies. And the executive leans forward and says, listen, you can ask for whatever you want, but you're only getting 1%. You know, I'm sitting on the couch hearing this story, getting just, I'm tensing up just hearing this. And then I look over at Quincy and he's, you know, laughing. He's like, oh man, they took all my stuff. And I'm getting more and more tense. And Quincy's smiling. He's like, I'm still trying to get that stuff back. And I'm like, that's messed up. And Quincy looks at me a bit surprised why I would have an outburst like that in the middle of the story. And only in hindsight can I see it. I was still so beat up internally from that experience with Zuckerberg that any story of someone young making a mistake and taking advantage of was completely setting me off. And it's as if Quincy understood something about me that I didn't. Because he put a hand on my shoulder and he said, it's all right, man. It's how you learn. Mm-hmm. And it's almost as if my body was this overinflated tire and someone had just hit the escape valve and all this excess pressure was rushing out. And Quincy looked at me and he said, listen, 99% of people hate their mistakes. They don't want to talk about their mistakes. They want to pretend their mistakes never happened. They treat their mistakes as their biggest enemy. And that's the biggest mistake you can make. Because it's only when you treat your mistakes as your best friends, it's only when you cherish your mistakes can you learn from them. And only then can you grow. Your mistakes are your greatest gift. So of course, you know, that was you know phenomenal advice. But before I knew it, you know, the Quincy Jones Vortex keeps on going. And now, you know, my head is spinning, and you know, there's always a point in a conversation where you feel it's starting to slow down. I checked my watch. It had been about three hours. So I thought, you know, now would be a good time. And I just look at him and I say, you know, Mr. Jones, I just have to tell you, this conversation has changed my life. He's like, that's so beautiful, man. How so? And I said, well, you really showed me what it takes to grow. And he's like, amazing. You know, in what way? And I said, well, you showed me that the only way to really grow and be a person of the world is to travel and go on adventures. And he goes, no, no, you need to cherish your mistakes. And it's almost as if he knew that I wasn't supposed to leave that room until that lesson sunk in. And in that moment, it did. And I remember sitting there on that couch and having this epiphany that I had spent my entire journey assuming that the opposite of success is failure. You know, what do they teach you in kindergarten? The opposite of up is down. The opposite of success is failure. Of course. Right? That's how we're trained to think. But it wasn't until I was sitting there with Quincy Jones that I, that I realized success and failure are not only not opposites, they're just different sides of the same coin. They're both a result of the same thing. 
They're both the result of trying. So the opposite of success is a failure. The opposite of success is not trying. And I remember sitting there and swearing to myself that from this point forward, I'd be unattached to success and unattached to failure and instead be committed to trying and growing. And that changed my life forever. I love that story. It's such a beautiful story. In shamanism, we believe that there is no failure, that failure doesn't exist unless you allow it to exist. And that failure is a construct of a system that creates duality. So we look at the dark. A lot of times in life, people will say like, oh, it's all about the light. It's all about the light. But we always say that you can't see your light unless you go into the darkness. So the darkness defines the light. It shows you the the dimensions of consciousness, the dimensions of light, the dimensions of expansion. So it allows energy to expand the infinite void. So I think that's so beautiful because a lot of times when we look at the world, one of the biggest things that we see in the world and I, and a lot of, and even just in the way that people interact with each other is that they're always looking at things wrong in themselves. And when they do that, they're actually taking away from their light instead of embracing those things, embracing the darkness. Like I always tell people, if you really want to know the truth, go dark on it. Tell the talk about the thing that irritates you the most so you can get to the core. You know, um, I do. I'm an ambassador for Nelson Mandela. And, you know, a lot of Nelson Mandela and Kofi Annan, a lot of stuff that I do with my girlfriend It's about educating people on how Mandela thought and how he operated in his thinking. And his one of his things that he always operated on was the idea that if we continue to operate as human beings where we think everything is against us and every time something goes wrong, we think, oh, this horrible thing, this this disgusting thing happened to me. How could this thing happen to me instead of embracing the thing that happened to you? So when he was in prison, um, I spent a lot of time in, when I was living in Italy, spending time with his autobiographer, the one who was writing his book with him. He was getting beaten up every single day in prison. And every day he got up to go wash himself, he would go to the person who beat him up and say, thank you. You know, they were in a cell that was so small that there was so many people in one cell for so long, they couldn't sleep on their backs. So they had to sleep on their sides. And then they would have a person who would, at certain times of night, would make a uh, say a word, and then they would all turn to their other side so that they can all not, you know, uh, get bruised and so forth on the floor and sleep on their other side. But every experience he had in there, he used it as a way to gain more love, compassion, understanding, which made him such an, an amazing man. So when he finally did come out of prison, he wasn't revengeful. He wasn't walking around getting mad about what they did to him. He was talking about how do we unite the people of South Africa and really bringing that level of clarity to the people, which made him the president. But the thing is in life, and what I love about what you're saying is really understanding those things. And I think that's important for our development in human nature, because in we don't get in school emotional intelligence. And that's something that you go through, right? In life, through your experiences. So I really love what you're speaking about it because it's so poignant to where we are today in evolution and how we are actually operating our consciousness to be able to create a, a more a greater place for us to be on this planet. So I'm really thankful for your wisdom. Uh, what reasons do you believe people don't go after what they want? What, what do you feel is the the thing that gets in their way. So what I've learned from all the people I've researched, from the interviews, from 
the people I've met over you know the past 10 years who are trying to achieve their own dreams is that there is a singular reason most people don't leave the line for the first door. There's a singular reason most people don't go after their dreams, don't go after their goals. It's the fear of leaving the line for the first door. And you would think logically the hard part of taking the third door is running down the alley, cracking over the window, finding the you know inside person who will crack open the back door. People are more capable than they give themselves credit for. The hard part, though, is leaving that line. And if you think about it, what does the line for the first door look like? It's actually, it has street lamps on. It's well lit. There's a nice paved sidewalk outside. And the most important part, all your friends are standing there. Your family expects you to be there. And, you know, God forbid you've achieved some success in life where you're able to make food, you know, get food and shelter and take care of your basic needs. The first door is also the place that you're, that's nourishing you and, and, and keeping you alive. You almost have to be a little idiotic to leave the place that's keeping you, quote unquote, safe. Right. And where you have a sense of belonging. But what I'll tell you is that no one has ever achieved a dream from the comfort of certainty. And when I had started this journey, I personally was completely terrified in the beginning. and terrified every step of the way. So when I went out and did these interviews, of course, a natural sense of curiosity was around, how did all these people who I looked up to, how did they become so fearless? You know, I assume there had to be a sense of fearlessness if you look at Elon Musk or Oprah Winfrey or you know, whomever, right? Or else how would they have done what they did? And what I started finding out in all these interviews is not only were every single one of them scared in the beginning, they were also scared every step of the way. And that didn't make any sense to me. And what I've learned is that it wasn't fearlessness they achieved. It was courage. And while the words sound very similar, the difference is critical. You know, fearlessness is jumping off a cliff and not thinking about it. That's idiotic. Courage, on the other hand, is acknowledging your fear, analyzing the consequences, and then deciding you care so much about it, you're going to take just one thoughtful step forward anyway. And that's the key. That's absolutely the key. Absolutely. Because I've definitely lived my life in the, uh, in the fear one all the time. Yeah, 100%. And it's a nat- right? It's a natural part of the entrepreneurial journey. It's also a natural part of the spiritual journey. You know, some of the best spiritual teachers I talk about, you know, Pema Chodron has a great quote that says, you know, fear means you're getting closer and closer to the truth. Yeah. Right? When we're not feeling any fear, that means we're in a nice, safe, comfortable place. We're not really getting up close to the truth. Yeah. When we're feeling that fear, it means you're getting right up in the face of of a serious, dark, powerful truth. Yeah. I always say to people, embrace what you fear the most. And I always say, embrace yourself because that's the only thing you fear. And literally, you know, so when I was young, you know, I was, I wanted to go live in Israel and it was in a time of war in Israel in the early, early nineties. And I told my dad dad, I'm going to go live in Israel. And he was like, what? There's a war going on there. I'm like, I don't care. I'm going to go to live in Israel. I want to learn how to speak Hebrew. I want to go and understand the culture. I'm, this is where I'm going. I feel like this is where I can be best supporting the people And I was so scared. Like I had no idea what the heck I was doing, but I knew that that's where I needed to be. 
And my father had went off on me. He was so upset with me. And I realized when I went to meditate and really connect in with my ancestors, my father was projecting my own fears back at me through me. So he was taking on, he was being a mirror image of my own fear. And so I went to Israel anyway, and it was the most amazing experience to be there for the people. I first lived in Haifa, then I moved to Tel Aviv. And now I'm a prominent figure in, in Israel and in their culture and their government and doing stuff with them because I went there at a time and created a whole system and everyone thought I was crazy. All my friends thought I was crazy. And I, I dealt with the bombs and I dealt with all the things and I was there to help the people. And I learned so much about the culture, keeping the Shabbat and all the different things. And it was amazing. And what I realized was like, oh, so everything I fear, I need to walk towards. And so that's how kind of I maneuver. So I really love what you're saying because I'm really happy that the people in the world are listening to this and, and what we're speaking about. Because the moment I had fear, I knew that's where I needed to be. So when I had fear of going to Turkey and being there with the borders of Gaziantep, where ISIS was, and everyone's like, oh my God, you're going to be where war zone and ISIS. I was like, that's where I'm supposed to be. Get me a bulletproof jacket. Let's go. You know, and every time I feel that fear, I go, I walk right towards it because I know I'm going to find where I'm really supposed to be. And I love that. Karen. Yeah. And at the same time, I do not want to romanticize it. There are times where I want to throw up. There are times where I am going to stay in my bed and pull the covers over my head. There are times where I'm on the floor crying. There's times where I want to give up at the same time. Yeah. There is a huge difference between experiencing the fear and shutting down and running from it versus experiencing the fear and just trying your best sit still, invite it in, ask it questions, listen to it, and then say, I appreciate you. I know where you come from. I know what you're trying to do for me and you're trying to help me. Just sit in, just sit in the back seat. I'm going to drive. I'm going to take the wheel here. You can come along. I'm not going to stuff you in the trunk. You can stay, but I'm driving. It's yeah. actually we ignore our fear that it tries to grab the steering wheel and say, you're not listening to me, right? And it tries to take yeah. the car, swerve it off the highway. That's when you crash. It's actually been the moments where I've tried to ignore my fear that I've made the biggest mistakes. That's a beautiful one. You should say that again. Can you say that again so people can yeah. hear that? So I really want people to, to grasp this, it's, really take it in. And, and this is the thing, you know, fear is a natural part of the entrepreneurial journey. It's a natural part of the spiritual journey. And it's when I avoided my fear when I tried to ignore it, when I tried to silence it, that my fear got very temperamental, tried to grab the steering wheel and said, no, 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 you're not listening to me. And would try to, you know, turn the car the other way. But it's when I've actually listened to the fear, sat with it, even though it's nauseating, tried to learn from it, ask it what it's trying to tell me, and then say, I hear you. I'm not stuffing you in the trunk of the car. You can stay in the car, but just sit in the back seat I'm driving us. I think we're going in the right direction. Very nice. Your fear has something to tell you. It does. It really does. I, we, I, I literally believe that fear serves the purpose. To, you know, people want to get rid of fear, but also utilizing fear as a tool, right? And being able to see that tool as an opportunity to see what is really going on inside of a person, you know, because we're so busy living on the outside. It's important for us to come back into autonomy with ourselves. And I think, right. autonomy. 
Right. It's like easy to have compassion for a friend who's going through a breakup, but can you have compassion for your own fear? Can you sit down? And by the way, this is one of the hardest things that I've had to do on a personal spiritual level is say, ask my fears, where are you coming from? Tell me about how you function in my childhood. And many times there's a reason people are scared, whether they're aware of it or not. Um, so having compassion for your, your own fear is probably the highest form of compassion. Because um, once you do that, being compassionate to your friend or to your colleague or to your spouse, is, that's a cakewalk compared to being compassionate towards your own deepest fears. Yes, absolutely. And I think that also helps too when it comes to um, when we talk about sociology and we get into understanding the human dynamics, realizing that human beings operate in this trigger by trigger basis of reality. So, they'll, you know, and really being able to understand that level of what you're speaking about then requires them to go, oh, wait a second. So this isn't really about you. This is about me. And I'm actually being triggered. And that's what I'm responding to. I'm responding to the fear of the insecurity or the hurt or the pain that I didn't completely deal with. And that's why I'm getting triggered. And so if we can actually adopt that modality into society in a bigger way as a conscious intellect of education on all levels and all scales and all cultures and all realities, we're going to come into a greater understanding of how we can begin to create uh, a resourceful form of grouping versus a much more aggressive form of grouping. And acknowledging that it's normal and it's natural. At the same time, though, how you respond and what your actions are, that's where you own it. Yeah. Right? And by the way, same thing if you have a friend, a business partner, a romantic relationship where they're getting triggered. It is so normal. It is so natural. And at the same time, the way that manifests in their actions, that's on them. Exactly. I can have compassion for why you're doing it. I can love you for why you're doing it. But if you're one of my uh, cousins once had a great analogy saying, just because someone has cancer doesn't give them permission to throw up on your couch every day, right? Maybe the first time you can help them clean it up. Maybe they can start, you know, taking some ownership and, you know, carrying a bag with them, right? So you're, you know, you can love someone, understand what they're going through. But if they're yelling at you, berating you, emotionally abusing you or whatever, right? Whatever destructive ways their trigger, their pain manifest, that's on them. And it's, that's, that's where your side of the road ends. Absolutely. And I, it took me many years to come to come to learn that the hard way. Yeah, me too. I think it's interesting because I, I think the, the biggest thing that we, if we look at, you know, from our childhood is that we were told that we have to do something, create something. We have to have something in order to be valid in society. So the idea of our, our existence is yeah, required. Not even something, the best something. Right? right, right. It's just, you know, and it's like, so we have these parents and these authority figures who are telling us, well, we're not going to love you unless you meet our expectations of what we think you should be or what we feel you should be or what society says you should be. So we end up betraying ourselves from the very beginning. And that betrayal then follows over to every aspect of our life because then we start going, oh, we're actually doing things and following people and agreeing with people and going down this path and listening to the news and doing all these things because we were trained to follow the authority. 
And what what happens is, and what, what I hear you saying, and what I, I believe very strongly in what you're saying, is that the third door is literally the door of liberation. And so I want to talk about like, you know, what that represents to you and um, and what do you feel the meaning of liberation is and how do you conceive that in your life? To me, for you know, first of all, you nailed it on the head. To me, the greatest gift you can give someone, and I'm sure this is, you probably would resonate with this in your own works, spiritual work, is to help give someone the tools to liberate themselves. The biggest thing I've learned is that most of us have the, the key in our pocket the entire time. It just takes a moment of stillness and courage to search in our own pockets for that key. And to me, if I've learned one thing over the past 10 years, it's that you can give someone all the best tools and knowledge in the world, and sometimes their life can still feel stuck. But if you change what someone believes is possible, they'll never be the same. And before, you know, you know, with the third door or with any of the work that I do, before I go into any of the tactics or the cold email templates or the you know, negotiating, before any of that, the most important thing is to make sure people believe that it's possible. Because once they believe it's possible, they're already running forward. And all you have to do is just toss up the ball and they can alley-oop it, right? That to me is the heart and soul of this mission. Yeah. And that's, and that's you know, the book to me is one of the canvases. You know, I, I spent seven years painting that painting in my mind. But to me, it's also, you know, as long as, you know, Maya Angelou had this great quote a year before she passed away. She, someone asked her the year before she passed, obviously no one knew it was the year before she passed. I think she was maybe 80, you know, in her mid eighties. And someone asked her, you know, Maya, you've done everything imaginable that you could achieve. Do you still feel like you have a purpose? And she said, I woke up today. So God definitely has a plan for me. And I just love that, which is that it might be the smile you give the person at the grocery store. That right. was your purpose today. It might be just the look you gave someone that said, I'm here for you. It might be a, a sentence that you say compassionately out loud that you don't even know is exactly what that person needed to hear. You have a purpose here. And the real ultimate purpose of the third door is that to find that destiny, to go forth for what your calling is, it's not going to happen while you wait in line asking someone for permission to let you in. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I always say to people that as long as you're breathing air, whatever resource you have is a part of your purpose, you know, and that everything that we have, it doesn't matter. Like even in my life with my girlfriend and the way we are in the royal family, like we are like, we're not going to take this, this position, this opportunity for granted. We're going to utilize it to bring knowledge and wisdom to these people in these higher echelons who don't listen to anyone only, but what's it, what, what their own kind, you know, you can't go to queen Elizabeth and say this, this, and this, unless you are Royal, she'll, she'll hear you. But if you are talking to her for someone else, they're like, she won't even listen to you. So it's, it's, it's like interesting how spirit positions us 
in our family to be able to speak to them because there's got to be someone who's infiltrating that information to their minds, because if not, they're not going to get it. So we feel like every time we have breath, if it's speaking to the family, if it's speaking on the dinner table, if it's speaking at a ball, if it's speaking to homeless people on the street, if it's speaking to whomever it is, it's sharing love, giving a smile, being kind to the person at the grocery store, showing, opening up a door for someone who looks like they're having a tough day. Someone looks like they're down, compliment, Find something to compliment on them. Look for ways in which to be a loving interruption in life. And that's how we live our lives. And being able to honor that space for people, because like, you know, one of the things I see a lot in today, and I want to ask you what you thought about this as well, is in today's culture, we have people on Instagram, social media, getting these hearts and likes and doing all of these things and thinking that there's something really happening by just being a part of these, you know, these techno, I call them techno, uh, you know, pathways of communication and, and intellect. But in truth, what I would like to see people get into is really recognizing themselves instead of looking at Lady Gaga or looking at whoever it is that they feel Justin Bieber or whoever the next person is, or, you know, the guru or the shaman or the this or the that, and start seeing themselves and being in themselves and not always looking at the person and, and, and going, oh my God, oh my God, you know, and get into recognizing that codependency isn't going to support us as a global community. And that if we start operating in autonomy, it's going to support us. So my thing is, you know, when it comes to everything you're speaking about, what are your thoughts on how people can get out of that codependency, get into that space where they are this powerful engine, this powerful energy, this powerful spark that is creating in their lives, not because they're just following and, and bowing and submitting to whatever nonsense is being put in front of them? I have some degree of awareness that I am not an expert on this is actually where I struggle a lot myself. What I have learned so far, and I'm still in the very infant stages of learning this. I joke with my friends, you know, my expertise is that I'm the best at struggling. I struggle a lot, right? And that's where I learn. I learn in my struggle. Um, I learn in helping other people in their struggle. And in this department, you know, as you mentioned, there's like codependency on one side, and then there's this, you know, full autonomy on the other side. Where I'm learning to try to be is this middle ground of interdependent, right? Where you're not, uh, there's not this unhealthy, you know, attachment need. And at the same time, every miracle in my life came from a stranger reaching their hand back out and saying, I got you. And so, literally so many times a stranger, someone who just would look in my eyes and say, I don't know why I'm doing this, but this is how you do it, right? And every friendship that changed my life started off as a stranger. Every, every moment, when my dad passed away four years ago, it was my best friends who carried my dad's casket to the burial site. So this middle ground of this almost healthy interdependence where you ask for help, you offer help, you admit when you're struggling, and at the same time know that you're in charge of your actions, you're in charge of your destiny, you and your higher power. That's where the, the highest relationship is. 
that's where I'm personally learning where to be because it definitely, I, I've definitely lived in all of areas of the spectrum, right? I've definitely had some relationships that I'm like, whoo, that was a bit too, holding a bit too tight. And normally when I get there, it's from a place of fear, whether it's a romantic relationship, a business relationship, many times actually a mentor that I'm squeezing for dear life. It's because I'm freaking terrified. I'm terrified of what will happen if this family member doesn't answer my call. I'm terrified of what will happen if this mentor stops giving me advice. And then sometimes the flip side of that, when I go to the extreme of, I'm going to figure it out myself, I'm going to do it myself, I get myself in equal amounts of trouble, right? Because I'm just in my pure ego. And there's also a sense of fear there too. So for me, like the vulnerable, but also where I've noticed in my life, the magical, you know, openings happen is in that middle of saying, there's a great phrase. I obviously did not come up with it, trading my fear for faith and saying, all right, I'm going to be in the middle. I'm going to ask for help. I don't know where this is going. I don't know how it's going to happen, but let's just see what happens when I reach out to people and ask for help. It's very interesting. So it's interesting because in shamanism, we look at it from a tribal culture way. So we look at that each person in the tribe offers a certain magic, a certain wisdom, a certain capability. And each person in that tribe has to maintain their autonomy, but at the same time realize that everyone in that tribe has the medicine for them. And they also have the medicine for each. That's beautiful. Right. And that's that interconnectedness. Right. Um, but the aspect of the ego, the way we look at it in shamanism versus how we how it's been looked at in a lot of the um, old ways that it's been interpreted from different uh, scriptures of, um, of old different cultures is that the ego is the aspect of the self that holds on to your reality so that you accept it, understand it, and then are able to play within that field. So let's say, for instance, you believe the world is a scary place and that's what you choose to believe and you're the creator. So then the will, because you have free will, the ego then takes what you believe and then gives you an example of what that looks like. So if you're done playing in that playground, then you say the world's a beautiful place and the ego goes, oh, okay, the world's a beautiful place. Let me go show you why it's beautiful. And let me give you all the physical, emotional and mental examples of what that looks like for your reality. And so what we say is that it's a paperweight. It's kind of like, it's grounding you in earth realities of the ones you want to have. And then you get to decide how much of that do you want to step into. And then when someone's ego is in a battle mode where it's trying to like defend, defend, protect, protect. And in and, and that way, it's because you've created an installation of you want to stay in that playground and others are trying to get you out of that playground to show you that there's all these other playgrounds you can go into, but you want to stay in that one. So you become defensive and want to hold on to that reality. And so the way we look at it is we let people have their reality, love them unconditionally, as long as we're not taking abuse or taking any kind of energy from them in any way that's actually, you know, dysfunctional or, you know, not creating the most highest level of harmony for the individual or for the collective. So in tribal culture, a lot of tribal elders and shamans will meet with the person who wants to hold on to their reality and ask them, is your reality supporting everyone to be together and make sure that this tribe thrives? Or is your reality only supporting yourself 
and not allowing the tribe to thrive. And so these then opens up the doorway for the individual to want to seek to come out of that space and look at where the greater vision is for everyone, or do they want to come into a space within themselves? So I, I really love what you said, because I want to, because a lot of things that you say, I can translate back to shamanism in ways that I can, you know, play off of what you say and also what everyone is hearing. And we can show them the two juxtapositions, which I think is important. So how can people get in touch with you? You know, we just talked about the, the dangers of the digital connections, but, you know, that's one of also the beautiful things about it, too. So, you know, the easiest ways, if people like Instagram or Twitter, uh, it's just at Alex Benayan. But if you see me on the street, say hi, you know, you know, as well. And to me, if you ended up listening to this and something resonated with you, nothing makes me happier than hearing it. You know, so send me that tweet, send me that you know, DM, let me know, you know, what resonated with you. And if you ended up reading the third door because of this, let me know so I can say a giant thank you because this has been a beautiful, beautiful conversation. Oh, thank you. And people can get your book at any of the places like Barnes and Nobles, Amazon, whatever. However you like books, audiobook. Uh, I read the audiobook, which was a lot of fun. Physical books, Kindle, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, wherever you like books. Did you, would you, did you go into the studio and do the audiobook read as well? Oh my God. That was a whole adventure in and of itself because I am as a lover of books personally. Yeah. I'm a consumer of the art as well. We all know there's some audiobooks that you just feel the author's heart. And there's some where you just are cringing and you can't listen to more than 10 minutes. So I went on this whole quest of I got a vocal coach who's like Justin Bieber's vocal coach. I did all these trainings. I did. I actually got a, a music composer from Hollywood to create an original score for the opening and closing of it. And the producer of the audiobook uh, won a Grammy working with Michelle Obama. He just did Seth Rogen's audiobook. So a lot of love was put into that. Uh, and it was a full production. And it's something that I, I poured as much of my heart into as possible. That's beautiful. Yeah. I remember going into the studio and like, I have dyslexia since I was a kid and it's a great gift of mine because it supports me in my spiritual abilities. But I went in and I told my girlfriend and she's like, babe, you're going to be fine. Just go in there. You know? And I was like this little booth and I, my claustrophobia is kicking in and I'm just like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to get it done. But uh, I think it's great that you did it in your own voice because a lot, I think it shows heart and it shows commitment to bringing both not only your message, but also your voice forward in it. And that gives people a, so, so much more connection to you. So I'm thankful. Well, I'm very happy that we had this amazing conversation. You're an amazing man. Thank you for writing such an amazing book and being such a beautiful soul. And I look forward to connecting with you more. Likewise. And thank you. Thank you again. Thank you. I've created the Healing Temple because people all over the world want and need healing, but don't have the access to those healers or can't afford them. One of the biggest high-ticket items in the world today is remote healing, but some sessions cost hundreds to even thousands of dollars. And for only $10, the Healing Temple is a collective space for people to come together every Friday for 30 minutes. Participants are opening a wellspring of abilities, alleviating stress and brain fog, where the mind becomes more optimized and performance-based. 
and where you learn to utilize energy to up-level your consciousness. The Healing Temple also helps to break down walls where you begin operating in awareness of wellness, feeling ambitious and inspired like things are really changing in your life. Inside the Healing Temple, you're also stepping into a world where you might experience phenomenons that you thought wasn't possible. Something as small as a chill or the hair standing on the back of your neck becomes like an opening door. Some members have even said they've experienced increased psychic abilities and that these sensations have intensified with following sessions. I've trained my powers to impact change and I've learned how to get results. Who doesn't want to feel good? The Healing Temple is not only beneficial to you, but also to those around you. Because when you're feeling good, you shine that positive energy onto others. Your partner, your children, co-workers, even your dog or your cat. Everyone around you begins to feel better because you are feeling better. It's a rippling effect that's much needed on this planet. We need the Healing Temple more than ever right now because of all that's happening in the world, the social political structures, calamities, chaos, and feelings of hopelessness and despair. The social climate is on high and this pressure cooker is taking a negative toll on how many of us feel. The Healing Temple offers comfort on a global level because when more people are feeling good, the more kindness, generosity, and realness is generated. For only $10, I invite you to become part of the community that seeks to do good, to feel good, and to make this world a better place. Go to shamandurek.com and click the Healing Temple to join our wellspring of healing, restoration, and elevated consciousness. See you in the temple. Thank you so much for tuning in to Ancient Wisdom Today podcast. Tribe, I love you all so much. And if you want to stay connected, be sure to check me out on IG at Shaman Durek. And if you have any questions whatsoever, please visit shamandurek.com or contact info at shamandurek.com to learn more. And remember, tribe, no matter what, stay lit. <laughs>